Amen. If you've got your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 21. We're going to look at Genesis 21 and at part of Genesis 22. Uh, Continuing this big picture, bird's eye view, overview that we're trying to do of the book of Genesis. A book that is designed to introduce to us, to all readers of the rest of the Bible story, the most important features that are going to just drive that story from beginning to end. As I was getting ready to, and doing my best to dig into the details of this passage that in, in some respects is really bizarre, I couldn't help thinking about Christianity as a call to walk by faith and not by sight. That's Paul's phrase. It's, it resonates powerfully, I think, from, uh, from letter to the Corinthians. A call to walk by faith and not by sight. It seems to me that that's a perpetual Christian problem. Part of our problem is that the gospel mostly seems abstract and familiar to us. There's, it's, it, it's difficult for all of I do this for a living, and it is really hard for me to connect language about blood and crosses and propitiation and sacrifice with concerns that we have on the ground, with the, the specific things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. But there's another layer to the struggle, to walk by faith and not by sight. We're asked to believe, we're asked to rest everything on the existence of a personal God that we're told loves us and is powerful enough to secure what's best for us, come what may. But that confession that we hold to is easily crowded out by circumstances in our lives that seem so much more vivid than this promise that this is the kind of God with which we have to do and, and we can rest securely in him. A really mundane analogy of this struggle, a struggle to hold to what you know is, is true or what you're told is true when the, the things in your life, all the circumstances around you, shift and, and seem to contradict it. I, uh, a few years back, I went with some buddies on a lifelong, to fulfill a lifelong dream of mine. Uh, we drove on a Friday from Nashville all the way up to Cedar Point in Ohio. You guys know Cedar Point? It's this massive roller coaster park. It hold, I think it's got four or five different roller coasters that hold current world records. It is the mecca for all people who enjoy being scared out of their minds. And I, I've always counted myself as one of those people. And we, uh, we got there, and it's been a great day there. But there was this one ride that was sort of nagging me all day because we would walk by it. And I have not been scared on a roller coaster in, since probably I was 10 years old. I don't know. But this thing, to look at it, terrified me. What I knew was that I loved roller coasters no matter what. What I knew is that I had come here because of my faith in, in, in my ability to, in, to, to handle whatever comes my way because of this love for roller coasters. But when I'm standing in line waiting to go down the chute into this thing, you know, I, my knees are shaking. This is a ride that shoots you out like drag racing style, straight up and takes you up to like 100 or 120 miles an hour in just a few seconds. Shoots you straight up. No, none of these little sloped hills that, that go up and then, and then come down into a loop or anything. It just goes straight up. The highest roller coaster in the world, straight up, over the top, straight back down. And then that's the ride. That's it. And as I'm in this line, I'm stuck here, right? I mean, it's, there's, it's all ropes. Once you're in the line, you're going to ride that ride. But the closer we get and the more I see people shooting out on this thing, the more that my faith in my love for roller coasters is being challenged by what I see, which is now, which is now shifted. 
This is no longer familiar. This seems to stand in the, this, this certain brush with death that I'm staring in the face seems to contradict what I thought I knew. That's a mundane example. I think we can get far more potent and relevant. Uh, many of us have friends or maybe even ourselves who have, who have experienced deep personal suffering. There's one really close friend of mine who um, his, his life is just a story of one blow after another. He lost all of his family before he was even 20. His mother, father, siblings. He recently now has been abandoned by his wife. It has been one blow after another for him from the time that he was a young child until now. And when I think about his life and have walked through some of that with him and seen him confront it, I can't help but think how in the world do the promises that this brother has been given that God loves him, has what's best in mind for him, and is powerful enough to make it happen. How do those things square, that faith, that thing that I know and build my life on? How do those promises square with the sight that I'm confronted with when I see him struggle like that? The central story in our text today, I think, is it may be the most potent example in the Bible of an individual confronting that central dilemma. What do you do when the promises that you're building your life on seem conflicted, inescapably contrary to the things you see happening in your life? It's a story penned centuries before the details of the Christian gospel, but I still think it's the most vivid of the Bible's many stories illustrating what it looks like to trust God's promises and the character behind those promises when everything visible seems to call them into question. Genesis 22 tells a mysterious story of Abraham being called upon to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's a story that on the surface comes off as almost barbaric, On a deeper reading, it's a rich and ultimately brilliant story of faith in the providence of God. What we want to ask today is how did Abraham do it? How did he go through with what he was called to? How can we learn to walk by faith and not by sight if we look to the example of Abraham? And I don't think we can appreciate the full weight of of the story told in Genesis 22 unless we back up and also include the story concluded, really, in Genesis 21, a story of promise that God would give Abraham, this old guy with an old and barren wife, a son, and that through that son he would build out a new people to himself. That's a story that seems to be brought to a happy ending in Genesis 21, and then that sets up an amazing contrast in Genesis 22. So that's where we're headed today. What we want to do is look before the test itself in God's track record of faithfulness. And we want to move to the trust in the person that you know and not the things you see that that Abraham illustrates so well. And then the story ends with God's provision of what's necessary for the moment, but with implications that stretch far wider into the future. That's the trajectory we we want to chart this morning. Could call it the foundation of faith. That's Genesis 21. The nature of faith, that's the illustration of Abraham. In, his, in this call to sacrifice his son. And then the results of faith, how God acts in response to Abraham's amazing faith. That's where we're headed this morning. Would you please stand with me now as we prepare to read this from God's word? We're going to 
read from Genesis 21, verses 1 to 7, and then we're going to skip ahead and read Genesis 22, uh, verses 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now from Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on it in order order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And 
In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So first, the foundation of faith, the record of God's past deliverance. It's a great example that we're given in chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. The report of Isaac's birth, the way that it reads in those first seven verses is, at best, it seems, understated. If you consider all that's gone in in, since chapter 12 and building to this place, it kind of just reports it out of hand and moves on. But the point, in light of what's gone before, can't be missed. God's going to build for himself a people. He's going to build for himself a new kingdom that will restart, recreate what was originally created and completely marred by sin. And he's going to do that not based on the strengths of those who follow him, not based on recruiting a bunch of five-star candidates who are, who are going to be able, through their own strength and ability, to make this kingdom survive where the other one didn't. No. He's going to do it just as he did with the creation of the world. He's going to do it out of nothing. He's going to recreate out of nothing. And he's going to do it in a way that makes it obvious it all comes from him. Now, how do we see that in this story? He promised long ago to build a people from Abraham. We saw that back in chapter 12. And then he clarified that promise in a text that Bill covered last week where God comes to Abraham and makes a covenant with him and then says specifically that he's going to give him a son through Sarah, not through some other means. But just how crazy this idea was doesn't take much common sense to recognize because they were old. They were past childbearing age. And, and Sarah, even in her prime, was barren, could not have children. The details of the story point to this crazy scheme again and again, especially in how Abraham and Sarah react. They were not models of faith up to this point in the story. Abraham did everything he could to try to help God out in fulfilling this promise. He really wanted it to be true. He took some action based on it being true. He left everything that he had known ultimately and came to this new place that, that God was, was promising to build a, a kingdom out of. But, but he did that all along the way by attempting to help God out. Think about how he recognizing that his wife couldn't bear a son, not believing that God could produce an heir in the way that he had promised, he goes off and marries his servant to try to produce an heir that way, through Hagar. And he he gives birth to Ishmael. Well, that's not what God told him was going to happen. God had told him he was going to give him an heir through his wife, Sarah. Think about the fact that he gets creative, plays fast and loose with his wife in in Egypt because he's afraid that, that... He's going to be killed so that, so that Pharaoh can take possession of his wife. So he lies about it. He says that he's her brother and basically farms her out into Pharaoh's harem. He's farming out the very one through whom these promises were going to be fulfilled because he doesn't really believe that God can both protect him and then also give him an heir through this woman. All along, Abraham has been negotiating with God to try to make it happen through striking a bargain. But in the face of all this human effort, in the face of Sarah's own laughter when she overhears these angels telling Abraham that she's going to give birth to a child, in the face of this comedy of errors, God does it anyway. The text plainly states it. It just reports it. Verse 1, chapter 21, The Lord visited Sarah as he'd said. The Lord did to Sarah as he'd promised. 
Note how over and over again in the first two verses, we are pointed back to the fact that God had said he was going to do it, and now here he's doing it. He is making good on what he had said ahead of time, what he had bound himself to ahead of time. He visited her as he'd said. He did to her as he'd promised, and she gave birth at a time of which God had spoken to him. It's all of him. Note the centrality of the irony here. The emphasis that we get on it in Isaac's name. Remember that Sarah had laughed when she was told that she was going to give birth to this guy who was going to be the foundation of a new people. She thought it was crazy. And God tells him at the time, well, I'll show you how crazy it is. When you have that child, you're going to name him Laughter. And he is going to stand before you as a reminder of the fact that you didn't think I could pull it off. Here we don't have any kind of gloating. We just have these, te- these, these facts stated in a simple, bare-bones way. Abraham called his name Isaac. Yep, you can almost imagine him chuckling to himself as he gives the boy this name, knowing that he had, he had mocked the idea that God could do this, and now here he is having received this promise, a son through his wife, Sarah. Names him Isaac. And Sarah herself, in a self-deprecating way, celebrates what God has done by laughing at herself, basically. She says, God has made laughter for me, and everybody who hears it is going to laugh over it. She says it as, as one who's rejoicing, as one who has just seen God deliver in a way that she could not even imagine possible. Who would have said it? I think she summarizes it in verse 7. The main point of this story is who in the world? would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I've borne him a son in his old age. The point again and again through these, t- these details is that God is making good on his promises against all odds. He has chosen to deliver in a way that makes it obvious no one else has any part in it. He does it all. The question coming out of this account is, can Abraham live as if that's true? when put to the test with circumstances that call it into question. The salvation promised by God, the new people that he is going to create, has been emphasized over and over again as something that he has to do himself. Now can Abraham, who has failed so many other times to believe God could deliver, can he continue to believe when the circumstances shift? That's where, we, that's where Genesis 22 goes. You might expect that where the story's come from, the birth of Isaac would be a climax. But it's far from the case. That story is just a prelude to the most significant crisis in the book, to God's call to sacrifice the promised son. The stark reality of this call comes out quickly. Verse 2 of chapter 22. And needless to say, this is a story that raises a lot of questions, but withholds easy answers from us. That's one thing I think that makes it such a great story. It's, it's one reason that when, when you read about this from, from literary critics or from, from scholars of ancient literature, they're so blown away by the brilliance of this story because it doesn't, it doesn't submit itself to preachiness or easy answers. It, it just is what it is and lets the mystery hang in the air. What we want to know is why in the world would God call for this? What I want to know is what did Sarah think about it? What did she think when, or did did Abraham even tell her what he was up to when he takes Isaac and runs? How could Abraham even consider obedience here? Did Abraham really think that he'd have to go through with it, or was he confident God was not going to make him, that it was some sort of game of chicken? Those are the kinds of questions that, that we want answered, but that the text doesn't help us out with. Instead, 
This is a test to see whether Abraham believes that salvation is all of God, even when everything about his situation points towards the doubt in God's love and wisdom and power. What the story does say, a lot of questions that don't get answered. What it does say, what it does present to us, is a transformed Abraham whose faith holds fast when everything about his circumstances stand in the way of the promise. Now, I want to, I want to pry into the details of the story a little bit to show you how this comes out clearly. The crisis begins with an unimaginable command from God. God tells Abraham in verse 2 of chapter 22 to take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, think about how crazy this is in light of what we are told about God before this. For example, human sacrifice was pretty common in this part of the world at this time. That wouldn't have been that much of a stretch. Chances are Abraham had come into contact with it at other times, living as he did in Ur among people who didn't worship this God. But only where human life came cheap, Abraham's God had revealed himself as the God who created the whole world and who made humans in particular in his image. This is the same God who, in in Genesis chapter 9, talking to Noah, establishes the penalty of death for anyone who takes a human life because this human life is made in the image of God and therefore has a sacred quality to it. Now, this God who holds human life with that kind of radical value is calling on the sacrifice of a human life for some unstated, unknown reason? What, What in the world? But there's even deeper confusion on this issue because ultimately this isn't just some random kid that God is calling to be sacrificed. This is Isaac. This is the one that had been promised as the, the, the hope of the future. This is the one who was delivered by God himself on a platter when Abraham and Sarah could have done nothing to produce him. This is the one upon whom the whole hope for the future of the world rests. How in the world could the God who orchestrated this situation call for the sacrifice of Isaac? God knows full well what he's asking. Look at the, the way he, even the way he describes Isaac here, the repetitive way that he identifies Isaac as this beloved son points to the fact that God knows what he's asking. He calls him your son, your only son, whom you love. One Old Testament scholar says it's this unpredictability. It is this great contrast between what you'd expect God to do and what God is asking for here that makes us such a staggering test. God seemed to be totally out of character and completely destroying his program. Or as, as another says, God seemed to become Abraham's worst enemy in this moment. But immediately, Abraham acts to obey. The text points this out. It says immediately, first thing, early the next morning, he wakes up and he goes to it. He begins making the preparations. He sets out on his journey. It's not the kind of, it's not the kind of test that he could impulsively fulfill. Think about the fact that, as the text says, it takes him days to get to the place that God had appointed for the sacrifice. It's not like he could just, in a fit of holy zeal, rush down the hall to his son's room and sacrifice him there on the spot before he has time to think about it. No. No, God has appointed a specific place that's going to take him three days to get there. And you can imagine what those three days must have been like for Abraham. I mean, we don't want to sentimentalize this. 
The text doesn't give us any details, and we want to respect that. But it's hard not to imagine what was running through his head on that three-day journey. Was he replaying memories of Isaac's childhood, the kinds of things they had done as a family? Was he thinking back on the hopes that he had for the boy's future, the fact that maybe even the whole future of the world could be shifted through this son? We're just left to wonder. Then in a brilliant stroke of storytelling, the narrator tells us that Abraham looks up. Apparently he's just walking in depression and staring at his feet. And then there comes a moment where he looks up and he sees the place. On the horizon, he sees the mountain where it's going to go down. You can imagine what he felt like in that moment. I don't know what it's been like for you, what, what your your specific example is that you can go to in your head. Maybe it was the day of your of, of your wedding, and you, you ride up and you see the church building where it's going to happen. Maybe it's the day that you're giving birth to your first child, and you ride up and you see that hospital, and you know that's where it's going down, and it all becomes real for you. For me, most recently, it was... It was preparing to defend my dissertation. There was all this weight that I had, I had, had piled on to that one moment. All of these years of preparation, all of this anxiety about what would happen if it didn't go well. And I ride up and park, and I'm staring at the building where I know it's going to go down, and your stomach is just churning. You can imagine that's exactly what Abraham thought as he looked up and saw the hill in the, in, in the distance. And he, he tells his men at that time, stay here. Boy and I are going to go. And we'll do our sacrifice and we'll come back. Was he lying to them? Was this a, a white lie that he's telling them so that they won't be wise to what he's really going to do? Did he just believe that he wouldn't have to go through with it? We're not, we're not told. But perhaps the most traumatic moment in the story comes just a little later. He's left his men behind. He's gone ahead with Isaac only and his son with a gut-wrenching innocence. Asks him about the lamb. Isaac knows that there's just something not quite right about this situation. And with the, the naivety of a, of a child who knows that they rest in the hands of the, the parent who must provide for them if they're, to be, uh, if they're to survive at all. But with the child who doesn't quite know what might be amiss, he asks his father, I, I see we've got everything else that we need, but where is this lamb? It's almost like a child who has gotten wise to the fact that, who, who kind of knows what shots are all about and knows they're driving to the doctor to get those shots and they don't know why their parents would put them through this all over again. And that's where the story turns. It's with this heart-wrenching appeal of his son and Abraham's response to it that we see Abraham as a transformed individual. Abraham responds to Isaac simply saying, God will provide. God will provide for himself the lamb. Some might look at that response and say he's being evasive. He's dodging the question. Or he's just lying to the kid so the kid won't know what's going to happen next. I think really he's just throwing Isaac back on God. He is a man who through his track record with God's faithfulness to his promises has come to believe that God can make good on what he said he would do no matter how different no matter how much of a challenge this visible circumstances provide to that 
prom- to those promises. He throws Isaac back on God because he is now trusting the providence of God in a new and radical way. Think about who this is that claims God is going to provide. This is the same Abraham who married his, who, who, who instead of trusting that his, that his heir could come through his wife, has sex with his servant to, pre- to present this child that he hopes will, will fill in the, the blank. This is the same Abraham who farms out his wife to, to, to Pharaoh's harem. This is the same Abraham who, from, from every step of this process, has been wavering on whether or not God, on his own, can deliver on his promises. And now this Abraham says nothing. He doesn't negotiate with God. He doesn't try to talk him down. He doesn't propose any kind of alternate solution. He just says simply, God will provide. The remarkable thing to me is that it isn't that he believes God won't make him do it. I think that's one of those questions the text does actually answer. It's not like they're playing some game of chicken and he knows that God is going to blink. Remember, as the story goes on, he's actually tied his son to that altar and he has raised the knife in his hand to slaughter him. It's not a claim that God won't, will, will provide in the sense that he won't let him experience any kind of pain. Hebrews 11 says that he, he went through with this as one who believed that God had the power to raise him from the dead. He went through it as one who had seen God provide so much in the past that he now believed that no matter what might happen in this specific situation, whatever came would be the thing that God wanted to come and God would provide through it. That no matter how contrary the circumstances he saw himself in were to the promises that he had received from God, God would provide. And it wasn't up to him to figure out how. What he shows is absolute trust in the wise and loving purposes and promises of God. Confidence that whatever happens represents his providential will for good. It seems like he's finally connected with the fact that that any salvation is going to be all of God anyway. So he doesn't have to negotiate. He doesn't have to innovate. He just hopes against hope. What matters, the only thing that's relevant, is that God is able to deliver on his promises. The God who gave him Isaac against all odds would provide now. That's what faith looks like. That's the nature of it. And ultimately... God is more glorified in our faith the more outlandish it appears. The, the, more, the, the more separated are the content of the promises we're staking our life to from the things in our lives, that the, the circumstances in our life that shape how we view everything else. The more different those promises, the more, the more of a long shot they appear, the more glorious God's power appears when we trust he can deliver anyway. The more dramatic our pledge of the trustworthiness of the object of our faith. I love the way that Soren Kierkegaard puts it. He's a Danish philosopher and theologian about 150 years ago in one of his most famous books. It's a book called Fear and Trembling. It's a book about this story and teasing out the implications of how we relate to God because of what's in this story. It's a great light summer reading if you're looking for something on your Kindle for the beach. It's not really. It's worth your time, but it's not that. This is the way Kierkegaard talks about this episode and and specifically how he defines the significance of Abraham in this moment. There was one who was great by virtue of his power and one who was great by virtue of his wisdom. 
and one who was great by virtue of his hope, and one who was great by virtue of his love. But Abraham was the greatest of all, great by that power whose strength is powerlessness, great by that wisdom whose secret is foolishness, great by that hope whose form is madness, great by the love that is hatred to oneself. Abraham, in other words, is one who has completely resigned himself to God's promises and purposes for him. He knew any deliverance was going to come from God, so he could rest no matter what his circumstances looked like. So what are the results of Abraham's faith? This is a transformed man compared to what we've seen earlier in the story. How does God respond to him given this amazing faith? The story gets resolved at the decisive moment. Just as Abraham's hand is raised to take the life of his son, a voice calls out to stop him. The voice is attributed to the angel of the Lord, some mysterious being that speaks for God that that perhaps even is a reference to Jesus. Often in the Old Testament, that designation is attached to the word of the Lord who would become flesh in Jesus. Whoever it is speaks for God and, and stops Abraham from doing it. The angel of the Lord commends him for his faith. And then at the decisive moment, another sacrifice appears. He looks over and there's a ram caught in a thicket by his horns that can't get away. And Abraham takes him, takes this ram, and we're told he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham takes this as a confirmation of God's faithfulness, of his provision. But what's the deeper significance of the fact that God provides this ram? That's where we've got to drill down deeply. I think in light of the New Testament, this conclusion to the story, the, the, the command to sacrifice this ram in place of Isaac, the fact that there was a substitute that was offered, these are not random details designed only to test Abraham's faith. But to point to that instead, they're not, this test was not just about seeing if Abraham could deliver. It's, it's there ultimately to point to another theme that runs throughout the rest of the Bible. A theme that if God is going to recreate a people for himself in place of what was broken by sin, he's not only going to have to deliver them as he did through Isaac, he's also going to have to make them worthy. If they're going to be acceptable to him, if they're going to be saved from the ongoing effects of sin, God has to make them worthy. The reality is that on their own, any new people that he creates through Abraham and his descendants is not going to be free from sin. Abraham shows us that as clearly as anyone else could. He was disobedient to God time and time again all through this story. It's clear he was not chosen for the vehicle of salvation because of how wonderful he was. He was chosen, if anything, because of what a long shot it was that any new people worthy of being would be created through this guy. It's not that they're going to be free from sin. It's going to be that if God is going to create a people, not only is he going to make them as he did with Isaac, but he's going to make them worthy. Remember that Isaac represents the hope of a new people. When Abraham ties him to the altar, what is there on the chopping block is a new people, and any chance of a new kingdom that God could create. And in that moment, 
God provides a substitute so that that new people does not have to die. That's a thread that if you pull on it long enough, takes you through the rest of the Bible. It's a thread that pulls you right to the Exodus story, to the story of the people of Israel sacrificing a lamb and and putting the blood of that lamb over their doorpost to prevent their children from being taken with those of Egypt. It's It's a thread that leads you directly to the Day of Atonement sacrifice called for in the law, where on that one day, Israel's sins are symbolically placed on a lamb that is slaughtered for the people. It's a thread that will pull you straight to Isaiah 53 and the promise of a suffering servant who, through his faithfulness and through the fact that he dies as one who didn't deserve it, would take on himself the iniquity of us all. And it's a thread that ultimately leads us to Jesus. We looked at Mark together as a congregation back in the fall, and and one of the first things out of Jesus' mouth is that he is here to establish the kingdom of God. He calls for repentance and faith in that kingdom. But one of the constant themes through Mark is that this Jesus who came to establish the kingdom did not come to establish it as some sort of warrior like you might have expected. As some guy who's going to come in with with a big army and wipe out the Roman oppressors. He comes in as one who establishes a kingdom of people who can relate in harmony and peace to God by giving himself as a sacrifice that makes them worthy. Ultimately, Jesus said of himself in in, in Mark chapter 10, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. What's pointed to in in, in Genesis chapter 22 in the story of Isaac is the hope of a new people that if it is ever going to exist, it's going to have to have a substitute sacrifice. Now, to bring this all around, we've seen the foundation of faith that God delivers concretely in history, and that as in that deliverance, he provides a, a rock on which Abraham's faith can stand even when the circumstances around it are shifting sand. We've seen that that kind of faith, that kind of all-in on the promises of God, no matter what happens, is rewarded by God with absolute salvation, that he, that he provides everything that's needed. Ultimately, he provides a substitute to take what we deserve. But perhaps the most important question we can ask in conclusion is what it might look like for us to share the faith of Abraham. Remember the function of these stories in Genesis. Genesis is all about beginnings. It's not interesting stories just there for our entertainment. They're stories that set a pattern for how we relate to God. In this story of Abraham and Isaac and this call to sacrifice and this amazing illustration of faith, there's got to be something there for us, something big and timeless. We've got to be really careful here not to moralize. One way we could go with the story is to say, look, Abraham was called upon to make radical sacrifices, and you will be too. Are you going to be able to bear that load? Are you going to be willing, like Abraham, to get in there and make the sacrifice? That's not what this story is about. Or perhaps we could say, if you believe, God will give you what... If you believe, if you believe enough, if your faith is strong enough, God will give you what you want. He will protect you, just like he protected Abraham and his son Isaac. That is not what this story is about. What Abraham does represent is the fact that salvation comes by faith and that that means a belief that God provides everything we need. It means trusting that if salvation is all of God, then the odds against his promises aren't relevant. It's not a call for us to sacrifice, but it's a call for us to believe even in the face of unimaginable contradiction. It's the call to us to be absurd in the confidence that we place in God, 
despite what our worlds may look like. It's a call to absurdity. On the ground, what does that look like? So let's say you don't believe. Perhaps you're interested in Christianity, but have not committed to following Jesus yet. Here's the call for you. You're called to face up to the fact that you bring absolutely nothing to the table. You bring no more goodness, even your best efforts at reform, at being a good person or at outweighing the bad that you've done. Even, even the best of those efforts are tinged with pride and selfishness that brings them down. The circumstances in your life, in other words, if you're honest with yourself, the circumstances in your life t- should tell you that you aren't okay and that you don't have any hope. That's what your circumstances should tell you. The call to the faith of Abraham is a call to trust in the promises of God that cut through and rise above those circumstances that promise to you that no matter how sinful you are, you were never going to bring anything to the table anyway. And it's all of God. And he has provided a way for even the foulest of your stains to be washed clean. That's the promise. Hoping against hope that in spite of how broken you are, God can heal you. But the call doesn't end with our conversions. The call to look past circumstance to the promise of God goes on for life. I think it's a great challenge of our life as believers to believe in God when it seems absurd given our circumstances. The call of Christian faith is to trust him. How? Well, like Abraham, it's got to be rooted in God's past faithfulness. His faith, shown in chapter 22, is not separable from his faith as grounded in chapter 21 in the fact that God had shown himself to be true by fulfilling his promises. Like Abraham, we should be looking to the, way, to the times in the past that God has delivered for us. But unlike Abraham, we have an even more powerful bedrock of God's love promised to us in the fact that Jesus has come. We live on this side of the incarnation of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So unlike Abraham, we have even an even greater, more vivid and clear pledge of God's love and ability to deliver. What, the thing that I love, I think, about Romans chapter 8 is that it's not escapist. It doesn't pretend like if you trust in Jesus that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. Romans chapter 8 is actually a string of promises that assumes you are going to be hit left and right by things that make your life horrible. And that in the, in the midst of those challenges, you can have the promise that because God gave his own son, it proves that his is a love apart from which you cannot be separated even by height or depth or any other created thing. Think of that string of promises in Romans 8. That string of the things that can't separate you from God's love. Know that those things are rooted in the fact of God's past deliverance in Jesus. Like Abraham, we've got to hang on to what God has already done in Jesus. And when we do that, we have the promise that no matter how absurd it may seem in light of the things that we're buffeted by on any given day, uh, that his promises hold true. And we believe in a God that provides. Will you pray with me? Lord, we need your grace to transform us much as you transformed Abraham. And we ask that you would 
not hold our weakness against us any more than you held his weakness against him. We ask for transformation, to believe, to hope against hope. We ask this of you as one we know and have heard through testimony of believers throughout the centuries that we know and have heard through testimony of our friends and have even experienced in our lives as, as a God who does make good. And so we ask for confidence, a confidence that's supernatural, that is absurd in the eyes of the world, and that therefore testifies even more boldly and clearly of how dramatic your power is, of how it's able to rise even against the highest obstacles. We pray for the faith of Abraham in the name of Jesus. Amen.